Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Vicky Doyle is the CEO of Rest Super, which is one of the largest membership bases in Australia. Before she worked in this role, she worked in other senior positions with AMP, BT, Suncorp and CBA. She's passionate about simplifying and demystifying super and is also driven to address the inequality and super balances for women who currently have 42% less super balances than men. Vicky ranks adaptability and organizational agility among the most important characteristics for successful workplaces and believes that building a culture of care is critical to this. When she first joined REST as CEO in 2018, she had to make some hard decisions to ensure that she had the right people on her executive team. During this transition time, she strove to treat all people affected with respect and care. Since she has started, employee numbers have also doubled. The pandemic has created many challenges. For example, pre-pandemic, the average hardship withdrawal applications was 100 per week. This grew to 65,000 per week when the government's first allowed early withdrawals due to the pandemic. REST have also aggressively gone about launching sustainable funds because younger workers in particular want this. One of the unexpected benefits of this sustainability focus is that REST employees now see a greater sense of purpose in their work and engagement has increased. Vicky has a lot to teach us all about how to strive for a culture of care and high performance. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Vicky Doyle to the Caring CEO podcast. Welcome, Vicky. Oh, thanks, Graeme. It's great to be here. Vicky, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Well, um, as a leader, for me, it's actually about setting up the environment and the workplace that enables and encourages people to be bring their whole selves to work. So for me, that's their emotions, their family lives, their mindset, their values, their intellect and their stories. And so having that type of environment to me means that people can really achieve their best and, and caring in the workplace is at the, the very essence of creating that type of environment. And how do you and your leadership team help facilitate that? Well, from my perspective, it's all about being a role model and it has to come from the top. So um, as the CEO, uh, it's really important that I am open and transparent and really talk to people about how I'm feeling. In fact, I fundamentally believe that the higher up you go in an organisation, the more real and down to earth you need to be because if the CEO and the leaders can demonstrate that, then people feel safe uh, to talk about all the ups and downs, and you actually get to see sort of the real heartbeat of the organisation. If it's not role modelled from the top, I don't think it can happen. And when you think about your team and working with a combination of care and high performance, how do you manage that sort of <laughs> that, that straddling those two things? 
Well, I actually think they're one and the same. So I don't think it is a balancing act. In fact, I probably believe that um, if you you have to start with a caring culture, you have to set up the environment, and I think it's mandatory for leaders to do that. And then performance, particularly collective and individual high performance and sustainable performance, follows that. And so actually I see it as an essential ingredient to driving high performance in an organisation. Correct answer. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. And uh, just for the, the purpose of our listeners, Vicky, could you just give a bit of a background about how you ended up in this role? Yes, well, um, I won't go into my whole life history too long, but I will say that I grew up on a, a farm of 1,500 acres in country Victoria and I went to a, a school with 25 kids. And um, you really had to make your own way uh, in that sort of environment. And I did go on to start uni, but I didn't finish it, decided to travel the world, kind of opted out on all the, the normal pathways. And then I did come back and I still really wanted to be a CEO. I've sort of wanted to be a CEO or a leader since I was six. I've always believed in uh, creating amazing workplaces. And um, so I was lucky to get back into financial services and just on sort of, you know, a good sales job. And um, working for some of those really big um, banks, they gave me the opportunity effectively to try my hand at lots of different things, marketing, e-commerce, wealth management, insurance, group strategy. And I guess from my perspective, I've just had this amazing opportunity to try my hand at every sort of job, keep doing my best and um, sort of fulfilling my dream of being a CEO. And uh, so I've been very fortunate to have great employers. You mentioned that uh, from the age of six, you saw yourself as wanting to become a CEO. Was there anyone that uh, influenced you about that? Or was it just something that was inherent, something you discovered yourself? Well, I think the actual language when I was six was I just wanted to be the boss. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it wasn't quite as altruistic. Um, it started off with I think I can really make a difference in the world and I I guess um, I had big dreams of being something um and giving something significant. And um, I have to say that didn't really come from anyone around me. You know, my mum used to say to me, Vicky, why can't you just be normal like everybody else? And I'd be like, no, I want to be an actor. I want to be a um, CEO. I want to be, I want to run a business. I just had so many dreams of really doing something significant. Um, And I just kept that in my mind and it just got more sophisticated as I got on about what is really a great leader and why do you really want to be the boss or a CEO and what is it you want to meaningfully contribute to the world? Who are the people that have um, influenced you on the on the way, people or leaders you've seen or worked with or read about that have uh, really contributed to your approach to leadership? Um, I think uh, there's sort of two sides to that coin, Graham. Firstly, um, I learned a lot of lessons from poor leadership, I think, when I first started in my early days. And I I learned really quickly how um, demotivated that can make you feel, and particularly in environments that can be very political and very power-driven. And I just had a real aversion to that. I just thought this is not the way you create 
and um, leverage the talents of your people. This is how you really um, create the opposite. But I will say, so I learned a lot about that and it really helped me define the type of leader I wanted to be in the type of environment I wanted to set up for people. But I did have sort of in my mid-career, I started having some great leaders, particularly sort of a sponsor who said, look, I know you haven't done this job before, but you've got all the sort of, you know, aptitude and mindset and why don't you give it a go? And that sponsor gave me lots of opportunities to do things I'd never done before and just to see how far I could go. So a great leader for me is someone who really gives you the support and the environment and allows you to continuously learn and um, just see how far you can go until you find the thing that you love doing. Yeah, and I had a similar experience actually, a really supportive boss, um, and he always treated me one level above what I was. And um, that sort of confidence, you know, I think, well, if he, he thinks I can do it, I can probably do it then. <laughs> so it is nice to be in that environment where you are allowed to try new things and work things out and it ultimately becomes very invigorating personally if you are going outside your comfort zone and, um, and getting some wins. It, it, uh, it really is. It does. When you started at uh, REST, um, I'm, I'm assuming you had a real agenda for change and uh, there's been quite a bit of change since uh, you've been there. It was about five years ago you joined, is that right? Uh, uh, it's actually just over three and a half. Oh, three and a half, yeah. Could you just explain some of those uh, changes that you had to bring in place? And I'm sure there was also some hard decisions along the way. What was the sort of process you thought about starting the role and what was the sequence you decided to approach it? Yeah, well, you know, obviously it was a, a great um, honour to to um, be announced as the CEO of REST and really was the lifelong dream and superannuation is something I'm very passionate about for all Australians. So, so I was thrilled to get that role. I guess when I came into it um, and how I approach every new job is I don't really have any judgments or bias or a, or a standard model that I bring in. I, I really like to come in and sense and listen and talk to people, uh, whether it's stakeholders, team members, the board, the leadership team, and just get a sense for what is going on in this organisation. What are its strengths? What are its challenges? Uh, is it cultural? Is it strategic? What, what are the things that we need to do to really take us to what might be the next level over the next sort of five years. So so I never really approach anything with any set model. Um, that being said, when I came in, there was quite a lot of things, great things that REST had done around innovating in technology for members and lots of digital aspects. But the culture and um, the capacity of the organisation just wasn't as um, prepared for the future uh, as it needed to be. And so um, I really needed to talk to the organisation about building a constructive uh, um, environment, having constructive leaders and what that would mean and how we would have that real, I guess, growth mindset and, and, and change the organisation. You know, there were there were great things happening, but a lot of people saying, oh, you know, this is this has got a lot of silos, this organisation. I thought, well, there's only 175 people. I'm not sure how many silos there could be, having worked in a tens of thousands of organisation. But, but it was really quite challenging and 
people were not happy. And and um, so my job was to really set up the right capabilities, set up the right structure for the organisation, think about the strategy and really bring in the right leaders. And that was a really tough period because there were great leaders in their roles, but they weren't necessarily the, the skills and capabilities for the future. And, and I, I that was one of the toughest periods I've been through. But um, I knew that I had to enable the whole organisation. And I guess when you've got to make tough decisions, um, they can be tough during the day, but you, you really, as long as your intent is about creating something much um, improved and better for the future and the whole, then you've just got to sort of keep focused on that and, and make sure also that you treat people really well through those processes. So, you know, we've gone from 175, 200 people three and a half years ago, and we're nearly at 500. And so we are transforming on a rapid rate, as is the whole super sector. But that means all through those three and a half years, we've added capabilities like, you know, there's architects and engineers and data people now. And We've got product managers and more risk people and uh, a whole lot of new capabilities. So, you know, my role is really been about accelerating the capabilities of this organisation to deal with whatever the future might be and make sure we deliver to our REST members. And and I heard uh, or read somewhere that you really admire organisations and leaders about being adaptable and having organisational agility how do you uh, speed up that uh, organisational agility? Yeah, that's a really good question, Graham. Um, I it's difficult, but I think you need to make appropriate change quite quickly. So um, to speed up the agility, it's both work practices. So we did bring in agile, and we we um, got flexible working practices, and that was all implemented. Um, before COVID and so we were lucky that when COVID came along we were well used to flexible working at home not to the degree that COVID brought but we still had some challenges but we'd already moved to that type of environment where um, you are starting to think about what is the task at hand and, and rather than people being in formal roles and only doing set tasks what is the the goals you're trying to achieve and what are you trying to achieve for your, your members or your customers? And then what experts do you bring across functional team together to, to achieve that? And so that's a different way of working to a sort of traditional hierarchy. And we also have been bringing in an enormous amount of new capabilities. So, you know, we didn't have a data team to the degree that we do now. We don't, we didn't have an architect's team, engineers, you know, all of these things are new capabilities. And so we've had to learn, actually, we need this capability, it's essential. Now, how does the rest of the organisation work with this new capability? And when you're doing that at sort of great change, um, it's really incumbent on the leaders to help people know why you're doing that and what the meaning of it is, and really keep keep reframing people's roles and keep keeping people um, with an open mindset. And just sort of the last point of that is we've been doing a lot of work on growth mindset um, and we're, we're training all of the REST team um, in growth mindset and how that really helps with adaptability and, and uh, doing small experiments, being in a safe environment, because actually... 
change is constant. And I know that is an old saying, but it's so true. And it's just accelerated beyond belief now, obviously, through COVID. Yeah. And it's quite amazing the the growth that you've had. You've talked about going from 175 to 500 people, which has its own challenges. How did you tr- how did you endeavor when you brought people on board to know what the what the culture was and how they could contribute to it? Well, when I went about um, firstly uh, selecting my executive team, uh, that was as much about the skills and capabilities as it was about their constructive leadership. So what was um, their understanding of servant leadership? How were they going to build that um, constructive environment? So I, I wanted to make sure that every one of those exec team understood that this was an enterprise leadership role that you're not here to just deliver your function, you're actually here to think about the whole enterprise and so we're all jointly accountable for that. So that sort of goes back to my earlier point about starting from the top. I I think that's essential that we have this broad enterprise lens and then now that we recruit um, a whole lot more people into the organisation, it is about people's values and actually their purpose and what they want to contribute in their skills, but equally um, what they believe that we're here for. And so lots of people work for rest because they believe in the purpose of serving our members, helping them with their retirement outcomes. And working in a profit to member fund means that we are solely focused on that. And um, that really helps us drive a particular type of culture and align everyone to the one purpose. Yeah, that's uh, uh, just reading increasingly how important purpose is becoming, particularly for younger employees. And uh, there was a recent study put together by Atlassian and uh, PwC that basically, well, it showed the societal issues that people were interested in, but then it also showed that the average person surveyed, 54% of them were uh, engaged in their work. But if their organisation was doing something about these societal issues, that engagement went up to 89% of people being really tying into it. So it's no longer a an airy-fairy thing. It's, it, it's critical, isn't it, to winning the hearts and minds of great people? It absolutely is. And um, I'm just listening to you say that and I'm reflecting on... Um you know, we in the last year uh, launched a sustainable, responsible uh, investment uh, um, investment option, and that was because you know we have 1.8 million members, but 50% of them are under 30, and they're all telling us, "Listen, we want the organisations we deal with to be thinking about the sustainable and responsible future," and that product has. Um, you know, t- and people were vo- voting with their feet. They're leaving if you don't have that investment option. So um, that's been incredibly popular. But the thing I reflect on is it's actually ignited the organisation as well. It's really, we've always had the purpose of being there for our members. But when you've got 1.8 million, which member are you talking about? Um, are you talking about the people under 30? Are you talking about the people, the women in country areas who work in retail and part-time jobs? Are you talking about older members who are pre-retiree, you know, it's such a breadth of Australians that are with rest. But this really ignites us in terms of uh, if you've got a, as I said, 50% of members who are under 30, they've got three, four decades until they're going to retire. 
So, of course, we have to invest sustainably because their their assets and their 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 super savings is in something that's going to be 20, 30, 40 years out. So it has actually created a great energy and an additional, I'd say, purpose where people are very excited um, about what this is and and doing more and we've just become a you know one of the 13 funds who's been named as a leader in responsible investing in Australia and that's actually been achieved just in this last 2 years where we've really accelerated everything on that front yeah that's uh Incredible. And, and I know my son, who's uh, 28, he was very deliberate in choosing his super and it was all around sustainability ethical. It really was. And um, and and the thing is, as I'm sure your members also found, it doesn't mean you get less returns. It just means you just have to think a bit differently. With um, yourself and, and your self-care, you know, it's obviously lots of stresses and strains being CEO. How do you practice self-care? Um, I think that, well, I've got a few practical things, which is, you know, well, first of all, I see myself as, you know, a full-time CEO and I'm also a full-time working mother. And so, and whether that's physically, emotionally or sort of mentally, um, you know, you, you occupy those spaces all at the same time. And certainly in COVID, you're physically, um, you know, homeschooling at the same time that you, you are being a CEO. And that can be, um, exhausting in some ways, but equally, I have always integrated the two. I've never really, um, separated them because I, I, as I said, I believe in people bringing the whole person to work, um, myself included. I think from a self-care perspective, what I find is because that can be quite demanding, um, I like to do jigsaws quite a lot. So these are quite practical things, but I have done probably a lot of jigsawing um, during <laughs> COVID because it just is a, an ability for me to get some mental recharge where I just sit there and it really helps me, fo- you know, get a mental recharge. And then I do a lot of physical walking and um, and with my son to school and the dog. And what I find is um, you kind of try and find places where multiple things intersect. You know, what's important to me is to spend some time talking to my son, walking him to school, walking the dog means I don't feel guilty and I get a walk myself. It means sort of three objectives are all achieved in one short 45-minute session. And so that's been a big part for me. Um, and, and those two things, I guess, are, are, you know, when you're pretty busy, they don't sound like big things, but they're, they're things that actually help me really just keep on top of my energy and wake up every day with a sort of a new a new zest to start the day again. Yeah. And I, I love that whole concept of integration because um, it means that you, you fit it in when it suits you and, and I guess the other people or stakeholders that are part of your life rather than work-life balance, which means, you know, life is good, work is bad. And uh, for many, many people, work is such an important part of uh, our well-being, and especially if it is purpose-oriented. Oh, absolutely. And I, I would say that, um, again, sort of with work being so much of our lives, it's incumbent and, and a core responsibility of leaders, in my view, to create the right working environment. Um, you know, if you can enable people to be the best they can and help them to learn, it's sort of one of the greatest gifts you ever get of being a leader. It's one of certainly one of the most satisfying parts of my job when I see others really achieve great things. 
If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress, and this provides easy-to-follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture checklist, and this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. A lot of your members are in the retail sector, and obviously that's had massive volatility in the last couple of years. How have you monitored their well-being and and look at how you could address that? You know, the retail industry is incredibly resilient um, and the people in the retail industry, and my mum is one of those who's, you know, for a long time been a part-time mum and in and out of the retail um, industry as well as caring and other sort of part-time roles. What I observed um, through that is Certainly in the first lockdown for our REST members, it was incredibly challenging. Um, And a lot of particularly women, but also men and younger people drew down on their savings in their super. You might remember there was an early release. You could get $10,000 and then you could get another $10,000. Lots of people didn't do that and and thought, no, I'm going to try and do anything else I can to make the ends meet for paying the bills but there were some people who really needed to to draw on that. In REST's case, it was more than 300,000 of our members drew down some of their super savings. And um, we talked to our members about that and they were, um, in some ways, we were a core essential service for our members and it really brought home to us um, and to most Australians that this is your money and also your fund can support you through that. So I think a lot of our conversations with our members were very much about listening to their stories and the challenges they were having. They weren't able to get work. Um, a lot of them are casuals and part-times, so they're not on any contracts that they can fall back on. So um, it was quite a difficult period. But that being said, um, you know, lots of them are, are back, you know, I, we talked to some of our members in, um, you know, Tamworth, for example, was a, an area we did some surveying of how they were going and they were already getting back into different part-time retail jobs that were um, packing things or delivering things and they were some of those members were already sacrificing some of um, their salary into top up their super and make up the gap. Like it's quite amazing how people can be, even though super can be really complex, they can be quite, you know, they really understood what this meant and are already trying to close some of that gap. So I, I think from our perspective, um, we needed to, we were having, seven, you know, we normally have two to 3,000 calls a day. During that period, it was 7,000 calls a day. Wow. And it was really, it was really challenging for us. We couldn't get to everybody because we didn't have our contact centre all had to be removed remotely. And so they were 
dealing with all these really difficult phone calls themselves with people going through tough times. But, you know, I sort of fast forward it to now and there are a lot of people who are, you know, the retail employers cannot get people for the jobs that they have and um, lots of people are back in work and trying and, and really, you know, I guess getting themselves back on their feet. So our responsibility as the fund was to try and listen, help people through that. We offered a lot of um, sort of finan- other financial tools and other um, uh, support groups that they could talk to to try and help them with those challenges. But I think for now, um, you know, it's amazing how much that industry and our members have really bounced back. Yeah, it is uh, fantastic, isn't it, that uh, people have worked that out. But going from, I think I read somewhere it was 100 calls per week on financial hardship to then having to sort out 300,000, and you talked about call volumes going from 2,000 to 7,000. What did you do about that? Was it was it a matter of getting contract teams to help do it or was it using existing people? How did you manage that huge increase in demand? Well, in some ways, we all didn't manage it. It was so unexpected. Um, The government announced the changes and said this needs to be in place in four weeks' time. And um, as you say, we normally got 100 requests per week for um, financial hardship, and it was tens of thousands in the very first week. And we just didn't have enough people um, right in that first week. We couldn't you know, we put on a whole lot more contractors, as you say. Um, we tried to, we work with a partner called Link Group. Um, they support many funds. So they they were, um, you know, had to support lots of super funds trying to, to take these phone calls. But um, we did get there quite quickly. So we, within that four weeks, we made sure, you know, that people needed their money within five days. It needed to be processed. And that was, again, a brand new requirement had never been done before. And we did manage to get that up and running within the first couple of weeks. So, um, and we got to, you know, over 96% of people got their their funds within process within that five days. So um, it was just, you know what, I think, Graham, we just, Every day we just broke down every task we needed to do on the day and as much as we could get through and then the next day we focused on the next lot. It was just a very intense period for, for my team and our partners but each day we managed to, it, it amazed me how much our teams collectively could solve that every day and within sort of 14 days we had everything up and running pretty smoothly. So. Um, it just goes to show that if you you come together on a very big problem and you work with all your partners and you have that trust, you can do, you know, amazing things. Another thing that I read, and I'm not sure if it's true or not, but um, uh, it was about you working with your insurance partner, Tao, to reduce uh, the wait time on life income protection claims from an average of 60 days in the industry to nine days. That's a massive drop and change. How did you facilitate that? Well, (laughs) before COVID, Graham, um, we did a tender for insurance and we were with a previous insurer and um, REST had one of the biggest um, group life insurance books in Australia. 
So, you know, our our business was one of the biggest because um, we have so many members and we have income protection and death and TPD. So we did a tender pre-COVID and we made a decision to move to TAL as a new provider. And we, we made that decision because they had, you know, a lot more technology and a lot more straight through processes for members. So we knew they were going to get a lot more help in getting back to work. So they had amazing mental health programs. And equally, they'd invested in the technology to make sure that the process around insurance claims was going to be much faster and online. So we made that decision. And in fact, you'll remember that the the pandemic hit and we went to remote working in around March 17, um, 2020, and we were in the process of transitioning to TAL and we still did that from the 1st of April. So we had to do the early early release of Super, but we also um, had to transition this huge amount of members to this new offer. And we just, we'd gone so far that we just, we continued that because we knew the benefit was going to be amazing. And, you know, we are now almost two years on from that in, you know, sort of April next year and TAL have delivered this amazing online experience. So it's really the investment in digital and leveraging these new processes um, that we fundamentally believe in, which means when you submit your claim, you do it all online and you get um, up-to-date status online, whereas in the past or even, even today in other places, you have to ring, keep ringing, ring back, um, no one really knows where it's up to. So so I would say to you that um, Tao's capability is a really big provider, but also their digital and our investment in digital is really the heart of making sure that members at the end of the day get a simple, easy, straightforward process. And that's what we aim to do in, in everything we can for super because it's just so complicated. And if you can't understand a product you have, then you can't trust it, then you don't really know what choices you have, and then people feel financially stressed. And our our job is to try and make it really simple and easy so people trust who they're with and they can make some choices, small choices, that could actually help them be better off in the future. What were the lessons you took away growing up on a farm? Well, um, I guess for me, uh, one of the most important things is you sort of, um, you learn by doing on a farm, especially a 1500 acre farm. You're pretty lonely, actually. You're pretty on your own. I had one sister and um, occasionally you'd have a a play date, but that'd be like once a month. It was nothing like city kids who all hang out together. So you sort of spend a lot of time in your own space and creating your own world and you also got to teach yourself stuff you know I you you learn to ride a bike but you learn motorbike and then a horse and then climb trees and then you fall out of the tree and then you get hurt um you know go on the river and go swimming then you might get leeches and you know all these things that nobody can really help you through and you've got to learn your own you know how to make your own destiny how to create your own sort of environment but equally to have a go at things and if they kind of fail so be it but you know just keep learning by doing and so I don't know if I enjoyed all of that childhood at the time but on reflection um, you know I think it was an amazing um, opportunity to really test you know resilience and just it's why I value learning by doing so strongly uh, because it enables you to 
you know, to just have a go and see what you can do and, and really, you know, you can try your hand at anything if you want to. You mightn't like it, but you can give it a go and you mightn't be good at everything, but it teaches you, a, I guess, a sort of resilience that is um, I feel very blessed now to have had. <laughs> yeah. My uh, father was a accountant in Tari, country town on the north coast of New South Wales, and he always used to love recruiting people that had come from farms because he said they just sort stuff out. They're not look, they're not used to things being perfect. They just sort it out, and uh, he loved that quality. And he also said that they were prepared to put in the work when they need to, sort of thing. So uh, you're just so adaptable, you know. Um, you know, you're walking along the paddock and there's a snake. So what are you going to do about a snake? And you're only seven and you've got to, you've got to think of what you're going to do. And sometimes you're successful in those things and sometimes you're not. And then, you know, it's just there's no set format around all of that. And, and yes, you do, you, it's a very much a hands-on learning environment, that's for sure. You also mentioned uh, that you went on a big overseas trip, you know, threw in work and went for a long overseas trip. What did? Uh, how long were you away? Where did you go? And um, what? In retrospect, what did you learn during that trip? Well, I was about um, uh, 19 and I had started my first half of uni um, and I was studying psychology and drama, actually, which on reflection are great degrees for being a CEO because <laughs> communication and, and those sorts of things. But um, about halfway through that, I just got very disenfranchised. And I thought, you know what, I want to go and be independent, do my own thing, travel the world, and I want to go back to my roots in Ireland. Um, so Doyle is my maiden name and my grandfather's Irish. I didn't really have family over there, but I um, more distant family. And so I said to my mum one day, much to her horror, right, I'm going, I'm going to go for forever. I don't know how long I'm going for. I'm going to go over there and work. So I, I wasn't so much thinking I'll travel all over the world, but I wanted to live in a different culture, but one I could navigate which was Ireland because we still speak English obviously um on my own so I packed my bags went and um went there thought I'd get a job and it'd all be fine because I'm Irish and they were like no I'm sorry you haven't got a proper visa so that they let me stay for six months and then I had to work around that and I got a direct sales job and I had to walk around and um you know meet all the Irish people in in Dublin in a in a sales role door to door and um I guess what did that teach me? Um, well, it's bloody cold in Ireland, so most of the time I was <laughs> freezing. But, uh, again, I guess it's another story of just making the best of what you've got, learning on the job. And um, I, 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 I think what I actually learnt was that just because we speak English and the Irish speak English doesn't, and I have an Irish background, doesn't mean that we have the same sense of humour and the same culture. And so I think that was the first stripping back of maybe biases, of making assumptions that just because we speak the same language, we're going to be very similar. In fact, I found it quite hard to fit in um, and I, I found that quite surprising and, and um, it took me a while to try and navigate the social sort of nuances, Graham. And so I think that enabled me to be more of a listener and and not judge things so quickly on face value um, and really try and tap into what's going on around you and all the subtleties, not just sort of 
you know, boulder in there with the big, great ideas and conquer the world. Actually, you know, there's a lot more going on than just that. <laughs> and presumably when you sold door-to-door, um, you know, you were probably on a, a strong incentivized commission sort of thing. And people that have done that, you know, talk about how hard it was. What did you sell and um, how how did you learn to to do that and not get, demoralised by the the knockbacks and the rejections? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I hated it, I'll be honest with you. It really, I don't like pushing things on people. I like motivating people. But if I think it's a sales job, I feel quite, I've had to reframe my mind on that. But um, I, um, you know, the Irish people were very welcoming and at that time all they wanted to know about was neighbours and I didn't know about neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to quickly, and they didn't believe me then because they couldn't believe I came from Australia and I didn't know about what was happening to Kylie and <laughs> Jason or whatever. So I had to quickly get up to speed on neighbours um, and I I just had to, I mean, the Irish are very good at selling and talking to each other and more entrepreneurial. So I just had to basically be quite cold um, walk up and down those doors each each um, day, and luckily I worked with a team of four um, men, and they were like brothers to me. And I guess I found that they were hopeless at the paperwork and the organisation, and I was not so keen to be up and down the streets. So we found that the role for me was better to organise all of them, including the boss, and <laughs> they could do some of the hard yards. So we sort of split the jobs differently and actually it was a, you know, I had a really, I was so fortunate I worked with some a great group of guys who just sort of looked after me like I was their sister and so I guess I adapted. I said, right, well, I had to keep doing it because it was part of how I got paid but I could also work with my team and they they sort of, we shared some of the money together. Yeah, I, I um, two years ago had the pleasure to go back to Ireland, Ireland as well and I'm of Irish descent and it was a wonderful experience. <laughs> we were there technically in summer, but it was so cold in summer as well with the, the breeze that, or not the breeze, the wind that comes off the Atlantic is uh, pretty unrelenting. It really is. But um, oh, It's so cold. It's so cold. <laughs> and just to, um, you know, add to the story, I'm actually one of those weird people who's allergic to the cold. It's called cold urticaria. And I used to get hives when I was a kid when I got really cold. And um uh, sometimes it can be in the middle of summer, but I jump in a really cold pool and I can start getting hives. And if it goes bad, you can go into shock. Anyway, so, of course, I'm going up and down in Ireland and I was mostly warm, but my face was exposed and I would start getting red hives on my face. And so <laughs> it really was totally inappropriate. That whole <laughs> job for me was just a no-go. But you know what? You've got to have money and you've got to be able to eat. And so, and as I said, I, I did meet a great team. So yeah, it was, but I'll never do it again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Understandable. There's a disturbing trend in Australia of um, older women becoming homeless because they haven't had the right resources to manage things, be it through breakdown relationships or, or whatever. What do you see, what do you see that needs to happen from a a structural point of view to help address that? Yeah, it's such terrible stories, um, but one that is familiar to me in some ways. You know, growing up in the country, most women are the minders, were the minders of the kids and really 
earned next to no money and any money they earned, like my mum, went on my school clothes and stuff for the kids and they never really had any savings accounts and they were very dependent on the husband or the farm or the family or even the the, the work and the labourers. Um, so um, very um, predominant in country towns and no one's talked about that. That's been around for a very long time. It's actually not a new, it's not quite a new phenomena, but it's become it's become more recognised, I think, and prevalent in cities. So now it's becoming a, a bigger, people are seeing it more, which is really important. Um, so I think structurally, you know, I, I, it's, it's not a simple thing to solve, but um, unpaid work of looking after kids is really a problem for us as a society. It really holds back um, women's ability to earn any income and then also earn superannuation savings off the back of that. And so, um, you know, there's little steps, you know, um, that currently there's no superannuation guarantee paid on um, the government's um, p- uh, maternity leave or parental leave. That should, you know, that's a tiny thing. Of course we should do that because you're going off to, you know, create a human and you are the person that is being designated to look after that child, then, of course, we should be paying um, superannuation the same as the working individual. Um, so, but that's just such a small step, Graham. I mean, until we um, really can, I think, validate that caring is a a, a valid and should be paid for type role, and I know that's not simple to solve, but until we philosophically get to that stage, we'll just keep adding a little bit here and a little bit there. And, and um, you know, again, we're seeing culturally now companies are work, moving towards paternity leave and we have paternity leave, not maternity leave, um, and that's good starts, but I feel like all of those things are going to take still another 10 years. Um, we sort of need radical change on how we think about care and providing for family and minding children. Childcare subsidisation could be a very big enabler. Um, that really would help many women back into the workforce for, for as well. Um, but it isn't a simple one to solve is what I'd say. So, um, But I, I sort of feel like we have to get our skates on because we've got all these small things we're doing and we're trying to get there, which is great, but I feel like it's going to take a while. You've had, uh, I guess, the challenge of being a wife, a mother and uh, a senior leader and and now a CEO. How did you manage to negotiate some of those issues which you've just explained? Well, um, as I said, I'd always wanted to be a CEO and when I was working for one of um, a CEO of um, a life insurer that I was working for, he said, you know, you're the natural successor potentially for my role. And I said, I don't want your role. And he said, well, why not? Because you want to be a CEO. And I said, because I've got a a three-year-old and I've got a nine-year-old and I I just can't see that this company would let me do both. And he said, well, that's nonsense. You just have to reframe how you think about that. And I said, well, that's easy for you to say that because you – have nannies or whatever looking after your kids. So, you know, I don't believe you. And he said, no, you're going to have to reframe it, Vicky. It's really important that you redefine what you would do. And, of course, when you're in those big corporations, I'm like, yeah, sure, I could say that, 
but how am I actually going to say, sorry, I'm not going on that overseas trip. Sorry, I'm not actually going to travel three nights out of five every week. Sorry, I can't do that 6am meeting. Um, you know, they're, they're quite important to some companies and culturally with the higher up you are, for you to actually say, I'm sorry, I'm going to prioritise my kids or family responsibilities, um, many companies or some can't can't go there and it's it doesn't work. So what I discovered is actually you've got to be clear about what you want to do and I can come back to that, but, um, you know, and then you've got to be in the right company that actually really lives those values. And I've worked in companies that say it and don't do it and you become a very stressed mother and you become very um, just stressed out about everything because you know there is pressure everywhere. There's a lot of words being said, but actually when you need to leave early or you've got to do, you don't want to do dinners, you know, that can be a real cultural thing in certain organisations where there's dinners and um, conferences. You know, they're things that I just don't particularly do unless, you know, if people can't meet with me in work time, and when I can be flexible around that, then, you know, I'm not going to actually forsake family responsibilities for that. Now, obviously, there's a bit of give and take around that. But I basically, when I had my kids, I sort of said, well, I'm sorry, I leave at six. And this is pre-COVID. And um, and I don't accept all the dinners. And I don't go to those sort of nighttime events because I need to be here for, I've got two roles and I've got to fulfill both these roles the best I can. And and I've been upfront with my, you know, coming into this job about, you know, I'll, I'll be the CEO, but just, you know, I'm also a full-time mother and, and I'm the primary carer in some ways. I have support, obviously, but that's just how my family works. Um, and you have to accept that I'm going to bring that type of leadership and it means that I won't always be doing the traditional um, requirements or hours, but I will um, deliver and, you know, achieve and contribute. And and um, so it's about finding the right company, Graham, and, and then also sticking to it. And as I said earlier, the higher up you go, particularly women, the more you need to do that because I've had so many people come up to me and say, I'm so thankful that you lead your life the way you do because it has given me permission to to ask for more for myself, to not just accept working in an environment that doesn't allow that, that thinks that that says one thing and not the other. I've stood up for myself and now I'm a happier person because I know there are companies that can support you in those goals. And obviously that's changed a lot more in recent times, but um, certainly when I was going through um, financial services earlier on, that was not, it was not the the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned just uh, as you are introducing it about you've got to decide what you want to be. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I, got, I had to decide where my boundaries were and 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 that I am, I had to sort of acknowledge that I am a full-time mother and I, actually I had, that took quite a while. It sounds stupid, but you you think, you do, you do find yourself where well, you're a CEO or even an executive or you're a general manager and then on the side you know you're a mother, but, but actually it I know that I am a full-time mother, even if it's emotionally and mentally. And I've just come to realise that I think even through COVID, I've got sort of another level of appreciation that that is who I am and that's okay and I have to continue 
to make sure that those things, those priorities are front and centre and one doesn't overrule the other. So um, it's, I think you have to keep your eye on it because it's very easy to, so you need to be clear about that and continuously sort of refresh it because you can quickly feel the pressure of getting back into old ways when things might be calming down. So I guess that's what I mean about defining it and who you want to be. You've got to keep keep that at the top and keep coming back to it because um, things change and it, it's not always easy to maintain that 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 role modelling. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Vicky, and loved um, the wide-ranging discussion and uh, the places you've been and what you've done and uh, you are a, an incredible role model for, for many, many people. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back to your 19-year-old self when you were just embarking on that trip overseas, what advice would you give that 19-year-old self? Um, I think the biggest thing for me, and it was particularly when I came back from that trip, was to not be so anxious about and everything in life um, and that um, try and take a bigger picture and a longer picture. So I think you know, I felt like I was behind and everything was really important and focus on every small thing um, and that's what anxiety can do. Um, it was, I would love to have said, you know what, just have a bigger picture. Lots of things will happen. Don't try and think in a 10-year horizon. Try not to think about this week, this day, next month, six months. Don't put so much pressure on yourself um, to achieve or do everything in such a short period of time and so that for me and the second thing is that you don't have to know the answer to everything before you engage with other people um you know don't go it alone I think this generation now so much better at just doing things together that's that's just in their DNA in my DNA you did your own stuff your own way and it was your own results that counted and I wished I could reach out to people when I was younger and, and work collectively um, a lot earlier. That would be my two tips. It's uh, it's a very common theme, actually, with um, the people I've interviewed this year that, uh, you know, they'd be easier on themselves, be more relaxed and, and go for more things and not be, uh, you know, full of worry. And it rem remind me of a, a saying by Mark Twain, and I'm paraphrasing here, is that my life has been filled with many, many misfortunes most of which didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. So true. <laughs> Great to catch up, uh, Vicky, and um, have uh, a wonderful 2022. Oh, thank you, Graham, and you too. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable WeCare mental health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.